Section 18 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1, Section 18. Chapter 6. The Organization of the Church by C. H. Turner. Part 2. Two considerations, indeed, must be borne in mind which qualify the apparent rigor of the fourth and fifth century cursus in the first place we have already traced the beginning of the depreciation of the readership in days when liturgical formulae were still unwritten the reader's office was the only one that was mechanical what it had necessarily implied was a modicum of education and all who had passed through the office had at least learned to read Thus it came about from the fourth century onwards that the readers were the boys who were receiving training and education in the schools of the church. According to the canons, for instance, of the Council of Hippo in 393, readers on attaining the age of puberty made choices between marriage and permanent readership, on the one hand, celibacy and rise through the various grades of clerical office, on the other. And the second thing to remember is that all these prescriptions of canons or decretals represented a theoretical standard rather than a practice regularly carried out. Canon law in the fourth century could still be put aside by bishop or people when the need arose, without scruple. Minor orders might be omitted. St. Hilary of Poitiers wanted to ordain Martin a deacon straight off and only made him an exorcist instead, because he reckoned that Martin's humility would not allow him to refuse so low an office. Augustine and Jerome were ordained presbyters direct. Even the salutary Nicene rules about neophytes were on emergency violated. Ambrose of Milan and Nectarius of Constantinople were both elected as laymen, the former indeed as a catechumen and were rushed through the preliminary grades without appreciable delay. St. Ambrose passed from baptism to the episcopate in the course of a week. But in spite of any occasional reassertions of the older freedom, it did nevertheless remain true that the curus, and all it stood for, was gradually establishing itself as a real influence, and it stood for a body continually growing in size, in articulation, in strength, in dead weight, which drove in like a wedge between bishop and the people, and fortified itself by encroachments on both sides. Doubtless it would have been natural, in any case, that bishop and people, no longer enjoying the old affectionateness of personal intercourse, should lose their sense of community, and imperceptibly drift apart. But the process was at least hastened, and the gap widened, by the interposition of the clerus. It was no longer the laity, but the clergy alone who were in direct touch with the bishop. Even the fundamental right of the people to elect their bishop slipped gradually from their hands into the hands of the clergy. Within the clerical class, a continual and steady upward pressure was at work. The minor orders take over the business of the deaconate. Deacons assert themselves against presbyters. Presbyters, in turn, are no longer a body of counselors to the bishop, acting in common, but, having of necessity, begun to take over all pastoral relations with the laity. 
tend as parish priests to a centrifugal independence. The process of entrenchment within the parochial freehold was still only in its first beginnings, but already in the fourth century, when theologians and exegetes were feeling after a formal and scientific basis for what had been natural, instinctive, traditional, we find presbyters asserting the claim of an ultimate identity of order with the episcopate. Such are the summary outlines of the picture, which must now be filled in, here and there, with more detail and the details will serve to reinforce the conclusion that the principal features of the history of church organization in the fourth and fifth centuries are not unconnected accidents but are to a large extent just different aspects of a single process the multiplication and development of the christian clergy one the people had originally chosen their bishop without serious possibility of interference from clergy voting by orders in the modern sense was hardly known. Insofar as any check existed on the unfettered choices of the laity, it lay in the hands of the neighboring bishops, from whom the bishop-elect would naturally receive consecration. Cyprian, it is clear from his whole correspondence, was made bishop by Carthage, by the laity, against the decided wishes of his colleagues in the presbyterate. After the death of Enteros of Rome in 236, we learn from the story in Eusebius that all the brethren were gathered together for the appointment of a successor to the bishopric, and this was still the practice after the middle of the fourth century. The description of the election of St. Dabros in 374 by his biographer mentions the people only, cum populus ad seditionem sugeret in petendo episcopo, quia et ariani sibi et catholici Sibi Episcopum, Cupia Bon Superatus Alterutus Ordinari, another biography, that of St. Martin of Tours by Sulpicius Severus, depicts a similar scene about the same date. Martin was elected, in the face of opposition from some of the assembled bishops, by the persistent vote of the people. The laity, too, at least in some churches, still selected, even the candidates for the priesthood. Posidius, the biographer of St. Augustine, relates how Valerius of Hippo put before the plebes Dei the need for an additional presbyter, and how the Catholic people, knowing St. Augustine's faith and life, seized hold of him, and, ut in talibus consuotum est, presented him to the bishop for ordination. In Rome, however, the influence of the clergy was already predominant. The episcopal elections, during the troubled decade that followed the exile of Liberius in 355, are described in the Gesta Inter Liberium et Felicum. The clergy, Clerus Omnis Ides Presbyteri et Archdeaconis Felix et Ipsi Damasus, Deaconis et Cuncta Ecclesiae Officia, first pledge their loyalty to Liberius and then accept Felix in his place. The opposition, who clung all through to Liberius and after his death, elected Orsinus as his successor, are represented as mainly a lay party, multitudo fidelium, sancta plebs, fidelis populus, die populus. Yet even in their electoral assembly, the clergy receive principal mention, presbyteri et deaconis cum plebis sancta. And though there are some indications that the party of Ursinus had strong support in the local episcopate, it was Damasus, 
the candidate of the majority of the clergy, who secured recognition by the civil power. At the end of the fourth century, a definite place is accorded to the clergy in the theory of episcopal appointments. The eighth book of the Apostolic Constitutions distinguishes the three steps of election by the people, approval by the clergy, consecration by the bishops. Syracius of Rome, in his decretal letter to Himerius, puts the clergy before the people. Ceum cleri ac plebis, educumerit electio. The phrase cleri plebisque became normal in this connection, and ultimately meant that it was for the clergy to elect and for the people to approve. Fundamental as these changes were, no doubt, each stage of them seemed natural enough at its time. Indirect election was an expedient unknown as yet. Real election by the laity, in view of the dimensions of the Christian population, became more and more difficult, and the pretense of it, tumultuous and unsatisfactory. The members of the clergy, on the other hand, were now considerable enough for a genuine electing body, yet not too unwieldy for control and the people were gradually ousted from any effective participation. So far as the influence of the laity still continued to make itself felt, it was through the interference of the state. Under either alternative, Christian feeling had to content itself with a grave deflection from primitive ideals. 2. The earlier paragraphs of this chapter have already given us reason to anticipate the developments of the deaconate in the fourth century. We have seen how the intimate relations of the deacons with the bishop as his personal staff caused the business of the churches to pass more and more, as numbers multiplied, through their hands. We have seen also how from their attendance on the bishop, in church as well as outside of it, they gradually acquired what they did not originally possess, a status in Christian worship. It is just on these two lines that their aggrandizement still proceeded. In Rome, and in some of the eastern churches, witness the last deacon of the Council of Neo-Cicera in Pontus, circa 315, the deacons were limited, on the supposed model of the Acts, to seven, while the presbyterate admitted of indefinite increase, and the mere disproportion in numbers exalted the individual deacon, diaconos pocitas honorabiles. Presbyteros turba contemptibilis facet, says Jerome, bitterly. But if complaint and criticism focused itself on the affairs of the Church of Rome, where everything was on a larger scale, and on a more prominent stage than elsewhere, the indications all suggest that the same thing was in lesser measure happening in other churches. The legislation of the earliest councils of the fourth century supplies eloquent testimony to the ambition of deacons in general, and Roman deacons in particular. The Spanish canons of Elvira, circa 305, show that a deacon might be in the position of Regens Pleblum, in charge, no doubt, of a village congregation. He might, exceptionally, baptize, but he might not do what, in many places, the bishops of the Council of Arles in 314 learnt that he did, namely, offer the Eucharist. By a special canon of the same council of Arles, the deacons of the Roman city are directed not to take so much upon themselves, but to defer 
to the presbyters, and to act only with their sanctions. Both these canons of Arles are combined and repeated in the 18th canon of Nicaea, but the reference to Rome is omitted, and the presumptions of the deaconate, we must suppose that existing conditions in the eastern churches are now in view, take the form of administering the Eucharist to presbyters, receiving the Eucharist before bishops, and sitting down among the presbyters in church. Later on in the century we find the Roman deacons wearing the vestment called Dalmatic, which elsewhere was reserved to the bishop, and one of them, probably the Mercury, who is mentioned in one of Pope Demas's epigrams, had asserted the absolute equality of deacons and priests. Ambrosiaster, who may be confidently identified with the Roman ex-Jew Isaac, the supporter of the anti-Pope Ursinus, treats in the hundred and first of his questions De Eactania Romanorum Levitarum. Jerome, in his epistle, Ad Arangelum Presbyterum, appropriates the arguments of Ambrosiaster and clothes them with his own incomparable style. The Roman deacons, they tell us, arrogate to themselves the functions of priests, in saying grace when asked out to dinner, and in getting responses made to themselves, in church, instead of to the priests. And this arrogance is made possible because of their influence with the laity, and in the administration of ecclesiastical affairs. At sedue stationis domestice et officialitis. But the mind of the church is clear. Si octeritus queritur orbis mayor est orb. Even at Rome, presbyters sit while deacons stand. And if at Rome deacons do not carry the altar and its furniture or pour water over the hands of the priest, as they do in every other church, that is only because at Rome there is a multitude of clerks to undertake these offices in their place. We do not know that these indignant remonstrances of Ambrosiaster and Jerome had any practical results. We do know that in the second half of the fourth and the beginning of the fifth century, three deacons, Felix, Orsinus, and Eulalius, made vain attempts upon the papal throne. The successful rivals of the two latter were priests, Damasus and Bonifaci, while by the middle of the fifth century, as illustrated in the persons of St. Leo and his successors Hilarius, the archdeacon almost naturally became pope. 3. As the deacon thus pressed hard on the heels of the presbyter, so the presbyter in turn put himself in competition with the bishop. Ambrosiaster and Jerome not only deny any parity of deacon and presbyter, but assert in opposition a fundamental parity of order between presbyter and bishop. Both were commentators on St. Paul. Exegesis was one of the most fertile forms of that astonishing intellectual efflorescence, which, bursting out at the beginning of the fourth century, in the schools of Origen and of Lucian, and in the West fifty years later, produced during several generations a literary harvest unequaled throughout the Christian centuries, and the two Latin presbyters found in the pastoral epistles just the historical and scriptural basis for the establishment of the claims of the presbyterate that the instinct of the times called for. The apostle had distinguished clearly enough between the deacons and presbyters or bishops, but he had used, so they rightly saw, the term presbytos and episcopos 
for the same order of the ministry and it was an easy deduction that presbyter and bishop must be still essentially one so ambrosiaster in one timothy post episcopum tamum diocanatus ordinationum sobiecit quare nisi quia episcopi et presbyteri una ordinatio est utuque enum secaderos est sed episcopos primus est ut omnis episcopus presbyter sit non tamen omnis presbyter episcopus hic enum episcopus est qui inter presbytos primus est and so jerome when titus explains that in the apostolic age presbyters and bishops were the same until as a safeguard against dissensions one was chosen out of the presbyters to be set over the rest consequently bishops should know si magis consuetudini quam despositionis dominicae verite presbyteris esse maioris et in communa debira ecclesiam regere the exegesis of ambrosiaster and jerome was undeniably sound their historical conclusions were if the picture given in the earlier pages of this chapter is correct not so just to the facts as those of another commentator of the time perhaps the greatest of them all theodori of mopsuiestia no doubt the testament bishop was a presbyter but those who had authority to ordain the officers we now call bishops were not limited to a single church but presided over a whole province and were known by the title of apostles in this way blessed paul set timothy over all asia and titus over crete and doubtless others separately over other provinces so that those who are now called bishops but were then called apostles bore then the same relation to the province that they do now to the city and villages for which they are appointed timothy and titus visited cities just as bishops today visit country parishes utericu enum sarcados est in these words lies perhaps the real inwardness of the movement for equating presbyters with bishops and of its partial success priesthood was taking the place of order in the first centuries to saint ignatius for instance and to saint cyprian the essential principle was that all things must be done within the unity of the church and of that unity the bishop was the local centre and the guardian that alone is a true eucharist in the language of ignatius which is under the authority of the bishop or his representative no rite or sacrament administered outside this ordered unity had any reality baptism or laying on of hands schismatically conferred whether without the church among the sects or without the bishop's sanction by any intruder in his sphere were simply were simply as though they had not been under the dominance of this conception the position of the bishop was unique and unassailable but as time went on the single conception of order intense and overmastering as to those early christians it had been was found insufficient other considerations must be taken into account lest one good custom should corrupt the world breaches were made in the theory first at one point then at another christian charity rebelled against the thought of wholly rejecting what was intended however imperfectly to be christian baptism iteration of such baptism was felt and nowhere more clearly than at rome to be intolerable as with baptism 
so through much more gradually and uncertainly with holy orders the distinction between validity and regularity was hammered out quod fieri non debuit factum vale was the expression of the newer point of view augustine in his writings against the donatists laid down the principle of the revised theology and later ages have done little more than develop and systematize his work it is obvious that in this conception less stress will be set on the circumstances of the sacrament more on the sacrament itself less on the jurisdiction of the minister to perform it more on his inherent capacity less in other words on order more on priesthood we are not to suppose that earlier thought necessarily differed from later on the question for instance to what orders of the ministry was committed the conduct of the characteristic action of christian worship or as to its sacrificial nature or as to the priestly function of the ministrants but earlier language did certainly differ from later as to the direction in which sacerdotal terminology was most freely employed in the general idea of primitive times the whole congregation took part in the priestly office when a particular usage of lerens or sacerdos first came in and for several generations afterwards it meant the bishop and the bishop only the phraseology in this respect of saint cyprian is repeated by a whole chain of writers down to saint ambrose no doubt the hierarchical language of the old testament was applied to the ministry of the church long before the fourth century but it was either transferred in quite general terms from the one hierarchy to the other as a whole or it was concentrated upon the bishop thus in de discalia epistolorum it is the bishops who inherit the levite's right to material support the bishops who are addressed as priests to your people and levites who serve in the house of god the holy catholic church the bishop again who is the levite and the high priest contrast the language of didache but the detailed comparison of the three orders of the jewish ministry and the christians was so obvious that it can only have been the traditional use of sacerdotes for the bishop that retarded the parallelism we find levita for deacon in the epigrams of damasus and in the de officis of saint ambrose but the complete triad of levita sacerdos samos sacerdos for deacon presbyter and bishop meets us first in the pages of the ex-jew ambrosiaster and while ambrose employs the old testament associations of the levite to exalt the dignity and calling of the christian deacon ambrosiaster contrasts the hewers of wood and drawers of water with the priests and paraphrases the titles sacerdos and somos sacerdos as presbyter and primus presbyter somos sacerdos is freely used of bishops by jerome although the title was forbidden even to metropolitans by an african canon but in any case the new extension of sacerdos to the christian presbyter was too closely in harmony with the existing tendencies not to take root at once it is common in both st jerome and st augustine pope innocent speaks of presbyters as secondary sacerdotes and from this time onward bishop and priest tend to more and more to be ranked together as joint possessors of a common sacerdotium this new emphasis on the sacerdotium of christian presbyters is perhaps to be connected with the new position 
which in the fourth and following centuries they were beginning to occupy as parish priests it was the necessity of the regular administration of the eucharist which dictated the commencements of the parochial system while the custom of daily eucharists was neither universal nor perhaps earlier than the third century it arose partly out of christian devotion partly out of the allegorical interpretation of the daily bread the weekly eucharist was both primitive and universal and the needs in this respect of the christian people could ultimately be met only by a wide extension of the independent action of the presbyterate though in the larger cities it can never have been possible even at first for the christian people to meet together at a single eucharist the bishop as ignatius tells us kept under his own control all arrangements for separate services and the presbyters like the headquarters staff of a general were sent hither and thither as occasion demanded it may have been as definite localities came to be permanently set apart for christian worship that the custom grew up of attaching particular presbyters to particular churches probably it was during the long peace two eleven to two forty nine that ground was first acquired for churches within the walls at rome cemeteries were constructed by the ecclesiastical authorities as soon as the beginning of the third century but the earliest mention of church property in the city is when the emperor alexander severus two twenty two to two thirty five as we learn from lampridius decided a question of disputed ownership of land between the christiani and the Papinari in favor of the former because of the religious use which they were going to make of it certainly by the time of diocletian christian churches throughout the empire were of sufficient number and prominence to become with the sacred vessels and the sacred books a special mark for the edict of persecution in 303 and just as the restoration of peace produced an outburst of calligraphic skill devoted to the bible of which the vatican and sinaitic codices are the enduring monuments so too the ruined buildings were replaced by others more numerous and more magnificent constantine erected churches over the graves of the apostles on the vatican hill and the ostian way while inside the walls the lateran basilica of the saviour and the Caesarean basilica of the holy cross testified further to the policy of the emperor and the piety of his mother when optatus wrote fifty years later there were over forty roman basilicas all of them open to the african catholics and closed to the donatists inter quadragnita et quod excurrit basilicus locum ubi colligerent non habibent but this number perhaps included the cemetery churches for the parish churches or titulae of the city appear to have been exactly twenty-five under pope hilary four sixty one to four sixty eight in its life of whom the liber pontificalis enumerates a service of altar vessels for use within the city one golden bowl for the station and twenty-five silver bowls with twenty-five ame or cruets and fifty chalices for the parish churches scyphus stationarius scyphi per titulos the station thus opposed to the parishes is the reunion on certain days of the year of the whole body of the roman clergy and faithful under the pope at some particular church it was a corrective to the growth of parochial separatism like the custom of sending round every sunday 
from the pope's mass to the mass of every church within the walls the fermentum or portion of the consecrated bread so innocent writes in four sixteen in his decretal letter to the dissensus of gubbio presbyteri quia die ipso propter plebum sibi quidatum nobiscum convenere non possent id circo fermentum e nobis confectum per acolitos excipiunt utsia nostra communioni maxia non judicent separatos quod per parochius and in other dioceses fieri deberi non puto quia non longe portanda sunt sacramenta sic nos per commentaria diversa constituitus presbyteris destinamus it was part of the same careful guard against the overdevelopment of parochial independence that though there were parish clergy at rome in the fourth and fifth centuries there was it yet no parish priest when ambrosiaster wrote it was the custom to allot two priests to each church in timothy three twelve and thirteen septem diaconos esse opportutet es eloquantos presbyteros ut bini sint per ecclesias et unus in civitate episcopus at a council under pope symmachus in four ninety nine sixty-seven priests of the city subscribed each with his title gordanius presbyter tituli primati and so on but the tituli are not more than thirty some of them having as many as four or five priests attached to them indeed thirty is perhaps too high a figure for some tituli may appear under more than one name an original name for the donor or the reigning pope and a supplementary name in honor of a saint of the fourth century popes damasus had named a church after saint lawrence and syracius after saint clement the basilica built under pope liberius became saint mary major under zeistus the third four thirty two to four forty and the two basilicas founded under pope julius three thirty seven to three fifty two became in time the holy apostles and saint mary across tiber but if the parochial system with its single rector was thus no part of the roman organization as late as the end of the fifth century it was in full vigor at alexandria two centuries earlier epiphanius tells us that though all the churches belonging to the catholic body in alexandria he gives the names of eight were under one archbishop presbyters were appointed to each of them for the ecclesiastical necessities of the inhabitants in the several districts the history of arius takes the parochial system fifty or sixty years behind epiphanius it was as parish priest of the church and quarter named Bocalus that he was enabled to organize his revolt against the theology dominant at headquarters under the bishop alexander the failure of the presbyter and victory of the bishop may have reacted unfavorably upon the position of the alexandrine presbyters generally the historian socrates expressly tells us that after the arian trouble presbyters were not allowed to preach there at any rate it is just down to the time of alexander and his successor athanasius that those writers who testify to particular privileges of the alexandrine presbytate in the appointment of the patriarch suppose them to have survived the most precise evidence comes from a tenth-century writer oetichius who relates that by ordinance of st mark twelve presbyters were to assist the patriarch and at his death to elect and lay hands upon one of themselves as his successor 
athanasius being the first to be appointed by the bishops severus of antioch in the sixth century mentions that in former days the bishop was appointed by presbyters at alexandria jerome in the same letter that was cited above but independent for the moment of ambrosiaster deduces the essential quality of priest and bishop from the consideration that alexandrian bishop down to Heracles and Dionysius, 232-265, was chosen by the presbyters from among themselves, without any special form of consecration. Earlier than any of these is the story told in connection with the hermit Paman and the apophthegms of the Egyptian monks. Paman was visited one day by heretics who began to criticize the Archbishop of Alexandria as having only Presbyterian ordination. Os oti para presbyterian acaitin cherionian. Unfortunately, the hermit declined to argue with them, gave them dinner, and promptly dismissed them. It is clear that an Alexandrine bishop of the fourth century, slandered by heretics, can be no one but a Thanasius, and therefore this, the earliest evidence from Presbyterian ordination at Alexandria, is just that which is most demonstrably false for Athanasius was neither elected nor consecrated by presbyters. Not more than ten or twelve years after the event, the bishops of Egypt affirmed categorically that the electors were the whole multitude and the whole people, and that the consecrators were the greater number of ourselves. Yet this very emphasis on the part of the supporters of Athanasius reveals one line of the Arian campaign against him, and the conjecture may be therefore hazarded that it was by Arian controversialists that the allegations of Alexandrian Presbyterian were first circulated, and their real origin lay in the desire to turn the edge of any argument that might be based upon the solidarity of the episcopate. If the Catholics called upon the bishops of the East not to champion a rebellious presbyter, their opponents would, on this view, go one better, in their enthusiasm for episcopacy, and answer that Athanasius was no more than a presbyter himself. It is difficult for us, who have to reconstruct the history of the fourth century, out of Catholic material, to form any just conception either of the mass of the lost Arian literature, exegetical and historical, as well as doctrinal and polemical, or of its almost exclusive vogue for the time being throughout the East, and of the influence which in a thousand indirect ways it must have exerted upon catholic writers of the next generations jerome writing amid syrian surroundings would eagerly accept the there current presentation of the alexandrian tradition though his knowledge of the later facts caused him to throw back the dates from the known to the unknown from athanasius and alexander to dionysius and heracles of course there is no smoke without fire, and presumably the Alexandrian presbyterate, in the generations immediately preceding the Council of Nicaea, must have possessed some unusual powers in the appointment of their patriarch, but it seems as likely that these were the powers which elsewhere belonged to the people as that they were the powers which elsewhere belonged to the bishops. The explanation here offered would no doubt have to be disallowed, if it were true as has sometimes been alleged that arianism all the world over stood for the rights of presbyters while the cause of athanasius was bound up with the aggrandizement of the episcopate but the connection was purely adventitious at alexandria 
were at any rate local, and the conditions did not reproduce themselves elsewhere. There is no reason at all to suppose any general alliance between presbyters and Arianism, or between the episcopate and orthodoxy. On the contrary, all the evidence goes to show that in Syria and Asia Minor, and perhaps elsewhere, the bishops were less Catholic than their flocks. At Antioch, for instance, where Arian bishops were dominant during half a century, orthodox zeal was kept alive by the exertions of Flavian and Diodorus, originally as laymen, afterwards as priests. Insofar as the doctrinal issue affected the development of organization at all, it must on the whole, both because of the general confusion of discipline and also because of the ill repute which the tergiversations of so many bishops earned for their order, have enhanced the tendency toward the emancipation of presbyters from episcopal control. Whatever special conditions may have affected the course of development at Rome or Alexandria, it may be taken as generally true that by the end of the fourth century the Christian presbyter's right to celebrate the Eucharist was coming to be regarded as inherent in the sacerdotium, rather than as devolved upon him by the bishop. With this right went also the right to be served by deacons as ministry, or iperate, and ultimately the right to preach. While the eighteenth canon of Nicaea still regards the deacons as ministers of the bishop only, Later in the fourth century, the eighth book of the Epistolic Constitutions speaks of Tispelsamtoteros decoius, their service to both bishops and priests. And Ambrosiaster is aghast at the audacity of trying to put presbyters and their servants on a par. Presbyters, ministro sipsorum, paris facere. The right to preach had never been formally associated with any order of the Christian ministry. Ambrosiaster was certainly interpreting the documents on his own account, rather than recording tradition, when he asserts, Omnibus inter initia concessum, est at evangeliarii et baptizari et scripturis in ecclesiasa explanari. But it is clear that in early times, even a layman like Oregon might at the bishop's request expound scripture to the congregation. Nevertheless, Though the right might be thus disputed, the sermon, Omidia Tractatus, was part of the Eucharistic service, and Justin Martyr no doubt describes the normal practice when he makes the president of the assembly in person expound and apply the lections just read from prophets or gospels. In the fourth century it was treated as axiomatic that the right to preach, as part of the liturgy, could not even be deputed save to those to whom could also be deputed the right to offer the Eucharist itself. It is true that in many parts of the West the archdeacon did compose and pronounce a solemn thanksgiving once a year at the lighting of the paschal candle on Easter even, but even this extra-liturgical sermon, De Laudibus Coriae, was unknown at Rome, and Jerome, or whoever was the author of the letter addressed in 384 to a deacon of Pisenza, printed in the appendix to Valari's edition, finds in it a gross violation of church order, to Kenti Episcopo et Presbyteris Codomodo in Plebium Cultum Redactus, a vita loquitur docetcu cod piene non didicat, et festivissimo predicans tempore toto dehine anno iustitum vocus ius indictor. Even the rights of presbyters in this respect were inchoate, and still strictly circumcised, 
in the eastern churches it was customary for some of them to preach in the presence of the bishop and for the bishop to preach after them and valerius of hippo was consciously introducing an eastern use into africa he was himself a greek and therefore unable to speak fluently to his latin flock when he commissioned his presbyter augustine against the custom of the african churches to expound the gospel and preach frequently in his presence to jerome familiar with the eastern custom it was pessime consuetudinis that in some doubtless western churches presbyters kept silence in the presence of their bishop their right to preach attached directly to the pastoral office which they held according to him in common with the bishop end of section eighteen